This is Client Side from Fox Agency. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Joanne White is the head of global marketing at Teacherly, a remote teaching platform based in London and Dubai. She is a results-driven marketer with experience in brand marketing. She has led teams across private, public sector, charity, and the agency agency sector as well. She spends her free time running, blogging, and enjoying life in the fabulous Yorkshire countryside. Joanne White, welcome to Clientside. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction. It's good to be here. Yeah, I've really been looking forward to speaking to you, actually. After the pre-interview that we had last week, um, Natasha and I were really excited to dig into into your background. And you've got an absolutely fascinating history and, and background and experience. So I'm really looking forward to, to getting into it. Sociology and psychology first got you interested in marketing. Uh, and then you got your degree from Aston University in 2001. What was it about the social sciences specifically that first attracted you to the industry? Yeah, so it's very interesting when you learn about human behavior and, you know, how society affects how you behave. And then with psychology, the power of the mind and the things you can do to change your behavior. And then alongside doing that, I did business degrees in English language. So it all kind of went to the same thing. So when I, I understood what marketing was and then I understood the impact of society and psychology and then you start to think about language as well and how all that can be used either for you know commercial gain with marketing or or to make change mm. society so you know it's that's what you do with marketing you you think mm. about the person you're trying to reach you think about the life they live their values or you know so it all kind of links in and it's just very interesting that side of marketing I think mm. You you did a biz, a business placement at Ford in 2000 where you went on to stay for four years and you say that you learned a lot in, in those four years. You were, the, you were only one of five people to actually get uh, into the company from your placement that you yeah. did there. What, what did you learn there that you took on and replicated in the rest of your career? Yeah, well, it, I mean, it was a fantastic opportunity. It was one of those um, business placements that, you know, everyone was after in university. And it was like, oh, no, you know, I won't go for that because I won't get that job type of thing. And it, it was just a case of, oh, I'll give it a go. And yeah. um, we went we went down there and had lots of assessment centers. And, and yeah, it was amazing to be one of five. And um, it gave me a lot of confidence going into there in my ability. Um which was which is obviously a big key learning and then it's very you know it's very very male dominated environment back then um so it really helped me to understand um how to to kind of get over yourself in front of people and not worry about you know being a a petite blonde scouse uh Mm. in front of all these really important men when you have to present to them and just be honest and be yourself and people respect that and then also to, you know, I saw a lot about the agency sags. We work with Ogilvy um, and a few other agencies. So I got I got to understand what happened there with working with agencies, working on client side, what that relationship is and whether that was somewhere I wanted to go for my career because I was still thinking about, you know, being in, in the advertising industry. So I learned full end-to-end marketing as well as as how to 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 be a, a bit of a leader in a, in a male-dominated industry, really. So I pushed into the deep end, you know, I was uh, sent up to speak to 
the directors where you went up on a in, a, in their own elevator, you know, to their special huh. floor. It was that kind of place and all wood cladded walls. And you walk into right. glass glass room and there's all these men sitting at a table. It's quite, you know, intimidating. Yeah. Um, but I just learned to be myself and people came to respect that, which was which was nice, which I think is important, you know. It, it must have given you a lot of confidence being one of the five that were chosen from from the placement. What what do you think they saw in you uh, at the time that sort of gave you that opportunity? Um, it's funny because I'm still friends with like the five people that went in, and uh, we we, are, we laugh about it all the time because yeah. we didn't know if it was the diverse mix that they took in because like when we all you know like I was I was the one from the working class northern background and someone from another background um so not only joking it was more um I think it well what they told me you know you got assessed on different elements of your personality and your skill set and I, and I wasn't very good with maths I wasn't very good on the numerical side a bit bit of a chip on my shoulder and, and was very scared of maths and analytics but they looked at the whole person they looked at me and they thought it was very influential in front of them and you know, you have to, in these assessment centres, you have to think on your feet. Um, mm. You have to consume a lot of information quickly and then present it back in a very um, easy to understand way. So again, when you, you've you been studying people and language, it's kind of a skill you pick up quite quickly. Mm. Um, and that's what I think they liked. Um, and then they put me in a very analytical role, <laughs> put me on, uh, which Great. I got promoted in. Um, after a year and learn to sell and um, other other horrible tools that you don't like if you don't like maths you know sure Um, so that was good so I did I did learn those skills in in 2004 you left Ford and then went to save the children and you took actually a 50% pay cut because you wanted to do something a little bit more meaningful at that time in your career but it what it wasn't really what you expected going to that company explain yeah, so I went I went travelling a bit around Thailand for a few weeks and it's the first time I'd ever sort of stepped out of Europe and I saw real life and I saw real happiness from people who didn't have a lot and it made me reflect a lot on on what I was doing with my career and that's why I came back and thought, you know, I'm going to do something for good. And mm. so I went in with these really high expectations, you know, Save the Children, a fantastic charity, mm. amazing work. And I went in as a in the corporate team to sort of go out into the regions and get corporate sponsorship. But what I found is, you know, there's a lot of politics, a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape, a lot of waste, you know, in terms of funding that you bring in. Um, they just waste a lot of money. Um, and it was it was kind of this, they operated the same as, as a business, but without the um, the focus on the numbers and, and, you know, the commercial side, there was less of that. So it was, you know, it was quite an eye opener. And, and, mm. and the work that they did was phenomenal. You know, they did a lot of stuff with child soldiers and, and helping children get back into education and and the internal communications of these stories was pretty poor um and so I worked mm. a lot with them on you know when I get funding and I would send I'd create my own um sort of newsletters and updates from the field to try and tell the sponsors no matter how much they gave us to let them feel and see what they sure. do um and that just wasn't there and it was it was frustrating because those mm. stories are powerful they're they're what bring in Mm. Um, the business and motivate staff um, so we they did it good externally on the websites and stuff but not really inside so um I started to think internal comms would be something I would, would be more interested in which is what I then went into the government to do afterwards 
So let's talk about that then. So you, so you left, Save the Children to go and work for the government. So you've at this point, you've got private sector experience, uh, charity experience. Now, you, working for the government, you wanted kind of the best of both worlds. What yeah. What was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, it was fantastic. You know, I went in there. It's like a quango, if you remember what they were. Um, so there was kind of like a we had a bit of um, separation from government. So it wasn't like the Ministry of Justice or something. So we had a bit more freedom with what we could do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was it was a nice environment. You know, everyone was there for a good reason. And, you know, we were doing a job for good. For, for a good course, it was the Legal Services Commission. So it was about giving people access to legal aid. And I went in under a Labour government, so there's a lot of funding. Um, and it was, you know, all great. And then the government changed when we were there. And it was fascinating to see how different things are in, in government when you get a, a, a new um, a new party in. So, but, you know, I was working with barristers, lawyers, uh, mm. advisors, putting events on in the Houses of Parliament. I really mm. wanted to wow. politics, you know, and got really into it. And it yeah. was, so it was it was fantastic, you know, and, and I've always been interested in politics and how, you know, politicians talk and, and the people. Sure. So it was it was it was great on, on loads of levels. Really? Yeah. But, you know, of course, it's again, it's slow paced and not a lot of change, not like in the private sector. Um, again, a lot of red tape, obviously a lot of red tape, you know, it has to go. Everything you do gets signed off by 100 people. Mm. Um, but I was very lucky to work with the. Um, the chief exec, the new chief exec that came in, and I used to write her speeches for her, which was amazing because I'd like mm. to watch her say the words that I'd written. And amazing, that's so cool, especially yeah. writing stuff that you're really passionate about. And you know, yeah, it was a really, it was a really good experience. Yeah. Who 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 was the incumbent government at the time, and 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 what surprised you about working with government at the at that time that you hadn't really expected? Yeah, so when the Conservatives came in, it was it, right. they just cut a lot. They, they cut mm. a lot, um, you know. So I mean, we did waste a lot of money. You know, I cut I cut a budget of one point five million, I think it was, for like leaflets and stuff we used to produce, right down to sort of less than five hundred k. You know, there was a lot of waste that mm. we did just because we had the money, and and you know th- that does need to change because it's public money. But they cut really low, and there was you know impact on different areas of society like domestic abuse and things you, you know put means tested in so people couldn't get access to to um legal aid it was very hard and it was very hard decisions we had to make about the types of communications and events we would do and um you know we had a helpline and we had to cut that we had to cut people and and you know when you work somewhere and you can really see the impact of, of what you do and then suddenly you get the money taken away it's very hard mm. and then you know barristers and lawyers as well up in arms so that we had a lot of stakeholders to work with and you kind of just kind of muddling between the two you kind of side them with what everyone's saying but you've also got um to back the government that is funding you as a department so it, I found it very hard which is one of the reasons why I left because I, w- I didn't feel true to myself you know and mm. um, having to stand up for the cuts we were making when in my heart I didn't agree with any of it <laughs> so um yeah that's why I moved on from there so something that isn't talked about enough is regional discrimination, and it's still still a really big problem. Um, people from the north are treated differently to, to those in London and, and the south. You're from Liverpool yourself. Ha- have you experienced any of that sort of discrimination? Yeah, I did um, when I was at Ford. So they were based in Brentwood and Essex. Um, 
And yeah, from the minute minute I started there, there were just comments all the time about being a scout. And it's quite, you know, a bit of banter, people call it. But it got to the point where when we'd be going down to lunch in the lift and you'd be sharing the lift with very senior people. And some people would be saying things like, oh, where's the scouser in the lift? Watch your handbags, watch your wallet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this whole perception that I'm going to steal from everyone and I'm untrustworthy. And when you go in into meetings with people you don't know, but they've heard that about you when you go in, it's very, very hard, you know, because it's your, you're trying to um, establish yourself in a business, but you're constantly being knocked down with these stereotypes. So it was, you know, it, it was, it was something, I mean, I'm quite a strong person, so I'd, I'd give us good back, not in front of senior people, but the people that would say it on a one-on-one, I'd give us good back, you know, mm. to them. Um, but I was young as well, and it was my first job, so I kind of just thought, oh, yeah. that's how it is. Mm. Um, but when I left um, Ford and I had an exit interview, and it's obviously very thorough there, I did bring it up, and I said what it felt like, especially in the start at the beginning, uh, when people didn't know me. Um, it, how hard it was and they changed their whole diversity policy to include um, regional discrimination so that it's something that is is frowned mm. upon and not not encouraged mm. uh, when you're there it's, it's not banter it, it's mm. it's not part of just the way that people talk in the office no and it, you... it, it's so like it's so you know you can just sit there and roll your eyes at it but sure. it's it, it does damage your reputation in a business. If someone doesn't know you, mm. as soon as they see you, they think, oh, yeah, she's the mm. I mean, you know. Yeah, it has implications. Do you do you think it's still a problem today? How, how much of a problem is it? Um, I think, you know, there is definitely a north-south divide. And I, I think, you know, the media doesn't help either. Like, I heard someone um, from Liverpool on Radio 4 getting interviewed about stuff. And, you know, they just they just seem to pick, pick the people that don't aren't, um, eloquent and, yeah. and it just reinforces the thing that oh sure. the thick or um, whatever it is I think it does yeah. I don't think the media helps because they just like to pick um, yeah. the extremes of sure the, it's not just Liverpool I think you know other other towns get it as well um, so yeah I think there is and, and with education you know when you look at class the class divide so um, one of the things we, we've been talking about recently is um you know, boys in education, white working class boys, by the time mm. of age 11, they, they're very disengaged with education. And, you know, there is a, there's a massive issue there. And, and it, it's something that needs to be addressed from that, from that, uh, in that level as well. I think. We will, we'll come back to that in a moment, because you are head of global marketing at at Teacherly, as we said at the top of the show, it's a collaborative lesson planning and peer-to-peer coaching platform. Mm-hmm. You're a disruptive ed tech company. What are you disrupting? And tell us what some of the problems are that you're solving for your customers. Yeah, so um, if you think about educators today, you know, like today, today, the, you've got people that are tutors, you've got teachers. Since COVID, you've got parents who are, you know, became teachers at home. And we all know the struggle of that. Um, and then the only sort of technology that they've got available to them is your kind of Microsoft Teams, your Google Classroom, and they're very much built for enterprise and business, not for education. So what Teachly is, is it? it's a tool that is built by educators to help educators um, do their job more efficiently. So it it's a case of making it easier for teachers to plan, which is a massive admin burden for a lot of teachers. Mm-hmm. 
And then collaboration is key. So one of the big things we're doing is, is connecting teachers all over the world so that you might be a teacher at a school here and feel a bit isolated or you're not in a, a, a good area and you need support and mentorship from someone else. You can connect with teachers all over the world. And we're trying to build this global workforce that supports and inspires each other in the platform and outside as well. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to teaching that lesson that you've collaborated on and made it the best it can be, you can do that remotely. You can do it in class. You can do it simultaneously. So with COVID, you know, you've seen teachers, the profession, it needs to be more flexible. Um, and that's what our technology helps them do, work more flexibly. Um, and yeah, just, just, just something that's right for the teachers and the educators of today, really. Hmm. You joined the company company in April of this year, mid COVID nineteen. Yeah. What a time to start in the company! Yeah, it was a it was a challenge. It was a roller coaster. Yeah, um, you know, because everyone would be the same that was working from home. I've got a six year old and a two and a half year old, and as wonderful as they are, <laughs> entertaining and one needed homeschooling. Yeah, and I was trying to establish myself over Zoom calls that I was actually a credible employee. <laughs> <laughs> a difficult juggle you know yeah and they want to be part of your meetings oh my god like uh one of them like Xavier who's my two and a half year old and I'd set up things for them to do so that Mm. they would you know be safe and and out of the way while I was on these calls and it'd just go wrong and they you know things would be happening they'd be jumping off sofas on each other and you're trying to remain professional on the call and Mm. yeah yeah it was hard times, but, um, yeah. you know, they're very supportive. Our founder has two children of a similar age. Okay. And when so I, he knows exactly what's yeah, happening. Right. It was me. It was the pressure I was putting on myself to, sure. be, to be the person that I would be if the children weren't there. But the circumstances had changed massively. So, yeah, you, you just can't help it, can you? And I think people got tired of your children coming in and pulling mm. on the screen. It's like, oh, God, another child again. <laughs> <laughs> towards the end but you know I guess one of the things I've always done which I wish I hadn't done really but I kept sort of work and private completely separate so you know I was known as like a kind of ice queen and stuff in in where Mm. people didn't really know because I had a job to do and I went there and I think it was a you know because of where my career had started and then COVID changed all that because suddenly your life was in work and you the whole two lives had, had merged together so People kind of really know you because they know your house, they know your kids, sure. they know everything. Right. <laughs> you, yeah, you can't really hide much. No. <laughs> when you tell to lick your arm while you're yeah. have a <laughs> Yeah, yeah. All of your vulnerabilities are there there on show. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about teacherly and, and education more, more broadly because you mentioned a moment ago ago that 11 year old white boys specifically um are disengaged with education it's a problem that is that a a number of governments have tried to address in recent years why is that such a problem and and what can be done about it well I mean all this is new to me so we've got you know we have some very deep conversations here at Teachly and and we we want to use our platform as in like you know our brand to to start having these conversations and discussions to find out the answers. Um, so quite interestingly, when I was talking to Joy, who's an educator in our team, she used to um, teach in early years and, you know, have a mix of boys in the classroom. And she was saying that when 
she had a cohort with about 14 boys, she changed the way she taught them. Um, and I, I didn't quite understand what she meant because I've got a boy and a girl. And, and regardless of, you know, how you try to bring them up the same, they are different. They learn differently. They behave differently. And from the minute I think a boy is born, you treat them differently as mm. a, you know, as subconsciously. A and, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like this thing, the stats that say, I, I don't necessarily agree with this, but you would leave a child, a boy baby to cry longer than a girl things like little things like oh that. i see you know, right and you, you to know, toughen them up almost yeah maybe and I, like i say it's unconscious and I, mm. like i say i don't feel like i was like that at all but you know this this is what research tells you and then you know when they go out running boys seem to have more freedom they're allowed to climb more be boisterous as you say and they're just mm. more um what's the um oh, i'm gonna think of the word we're gonna have to cut this what's the word um not energetic. I'm trying to think of the word. Mm. Start again, right? So boys are more boisterous and they run around a lot. They don't keep mm-hmm. up, whereas girls will sit and read. And I've seen this myself with with both children. And then when you think of early years and teaching, so they've had all boys have had this experience. Then they go into school, and who teaches them in school? It's mainly females because there mm. aren't male teachers in early years which is another issue and you know so they've gone from behaving as they as boys do then they get into school and they're told to sit down and they're basically taught the female way and they are told you know one of the things that joy said when she was teaching this cohort of of boys in a class and she said to the head teacher i'm gonna have to change how i teach she she said boys just fall off the chair all the time they can't sit still because they're used to running around so the mm. first thing she did was put um, like a yoga ball in for the boys <laughs> and roll around on it <laughs> effectively. Mm. And, you know, she said to them things like, you don't need to sit at your desk. You can sit on your desk. You can sit under it. You can sit in the corner on bean bags. Okay. So you yeah. Can and really thinking about how boys are and making sure that they um, are helped really in the classroom to help them learn. Because otherwise what happens is, you know, the teachers call them disruptive. They call them, um, you know, there's ADHD because, you know, know, they want to run around a lot. And instead of looking at what the child is doing in the classroom and adapting, you're trying to force them to to, um, learn like girls. And because girls are teaching them, they're getting taught a certain way. And and so some disengage potentially. This is one of the things we were talking about. So by the time they get to 11 and they're going into high school, they, they just fell out of love. You know, they've been... N- nagged at in, in the classroom the whole time they haven't had any role models any teacher role models they've been taught a certain way and you know not all schools do this you've got like forest schools that would um you know you go out and you count worms outside instead of sitting mm. at the table and, and counting coins you know there's different ways of, of using activities to engage boys in early years mm. so that you can try and get them love and education rather than being trying to force a force them into a certain way of learning so I think that might be an issue and role models yeah the male role models they don't have any of them until they get into um senior school which is quite a long time when you think about Mm. um and early years is a really important time so yeah I'm sure there's lots of reasons to unpick but that was just one of the things we discussed recently Mm. fascinating I'd never really thought about it before yeah I don't think a lot of people have actually but you're um but you raise some really interesting 
interesting points. You you also celebrate diversity in the classroom, um, celebrating unknown heroes like Louis Latimer. Mm-hmm. Who who was he, and and why do you celebrate diversity in the in the classroom? Yeah, so since the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, we've been thinking about ways we can, you know, have the discussion around equity and equality in the classroom and and thinking about again this is something being from you know I'm white I've I've had a very white education and I didn't know any of these things existed but obviously we have a very diverse team and, and hearing their different experiences from all over the world was eye-opening and then we heard Michael Holder who's um, a West Indies cricketer um, he he was getting interviewed on Sky and he gave a really impassioned talk about how we need to change education um, to make change in society. And he mentioned the um, the inventor of the light bulb, Thomas Edison. And he said, mm. how many, you know, that's who you think invented the light bulb. And he said, mm. he invented it with a paper filament. So it burnt out and it didn't work. He said, but the person that created the carbon filament that allows lights to shine is Lewis Howard Latimer. And no one ever talks about him because he's a black man. And, no one ever, and and his point was that, you know, you only ever hear one side of a story and it's usually the conqueror's story. Sure. And what you need to do is tell both sides. And then you look at, um, you know, getting the, the men to the moon. No one talks about the women. Well, they, they are doing now, but no one talks about the women that got them to mm. the moon. So, you know, it crosses all kinds of um, discrimination, really. And sure. you only hear one story and, and what we're we're trying to do it teacherly is, is look at ways that you can introduce more heroes into the classroom mm. and talk more broadly. So we, we've got a whole series of people um, to, to put out on social to just remind them that the, there are other sides of the story yeah. that we need to bring into the classroom because people need role models. And mm. if you're only showing them white male role models, then it's not very inspirational for everyone else, is it? If you can't see it, you can't be it, exactly. as, as they say. Yeah, oh, true. Definitely. So so just bringing the interview towards an end now before we get into our speed round that we ask all of our guests, you've got private sector experience, public sector experience and charity. W- what's been the main takeaways from working across those three very different sectors? Yeah, they are. I mean, they are very different. I mean, I've got takeaways on how they run, but I think for me as a person, what I've taken away in the, in the jobs that I've taken and the people that have interviewed me, I think it's really important to not just jump into a role that you because you're desperate or you you think you need a job, and and to really know who you are and and who the business is. Because when you go into a role that your heart isn't in, you don't give it your all, and you don't you don't give as much as you can, and, and you can get frustrated, and then you move on again quickly. And I think you have to be very honest with yourself in an interview and remember that you're interviewing that job because you, you want to stay there, you want to have an impact and you have to believe in the people and what they're doing and be true to yourself, really. And mm. I, it took me a long time to realise that. Um, but I think it's very important. So whichever sector you go in, it really is worth doing it for something deeper than just you know the money or the need. Mm. If you've got the opportunity, obviously it's very different for people now because people need to be in work but if you have the opportunity yeah I'd, I'd think think before you jump mm, really interesting um let's get into our speed round now joan this these are our questions that we ask all of the guests that come onto the show M- these questions are more like the questions for 
you know, the person behind the brand uh, a little bit. So if you, uh, I'll fire some questions at you. If you can fire some answers back, that would be great. Which CMO has the hardest job in marketing right now? Ooh, I think, I think everyone does because <laughs> values have changed. People, views yeah. and behaviors have shifted massively. So, I mean, people in uh, the travel and hospitality sector, I think, yeah, really tough job now to try and understand where people's heads are at and their behaviors and values. Very difficult. Hmm. What's the single biggest thing that frustrates you about working with agencies and what do you absolutely love about working with agencies? I absolutely love the energy and the ideas and, you know, when sometimes you've looked at something for a long time and then someone looks at it and goes, you know, they're really enthusiastic and tell you how amazing it is and it brings that, you know, joy again, which is fantastic. Um, the frustration is, um, what would that be? I think I think impact. I think really feeding back the impact of, of what a campaign is going to do. You know, the real hard numbers. Mm-hmm. Really getting into the nitty gritty around that has been my experience in the past. How do you best harmonize your work and, and personal life, especially at this time, for a healthy balance? What What are your biggest challenges around that? Uh, I don't harmonize it anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a real struggle. I, I, I don't. I'm, I'm trying so hard to put a, um, a barrier between work and home life so that I finish at a certain time, but I, I haven't got any any tips yet. I just need to be more... Um, I need to put my family first is what I need to start doing and start working into the evenings and realize that, you know, realize what's important in life and working till 10 o'clock at night isn't really because it's not actually that effective um once you get after a certain time so yeah i i am struggling on mm. going with this and always have mm. you me and the rest of the country i think <laughs> uh, what excites you most about your current role and position uh, just just being able to make a little little bit of difference uh, one of my one of the uh, the owner at frog used to say if you could you know you got one life if you can have a small impact somewhere then it, it's worth it and I think this this role is going to allow me to do that um even if it's just you know a couple of teachers somewhere that change the way they teach and mm. that class has a positive impact that's quite a an exciting prospect mm. for me mm. well said if you weren't doing your current job what would you be doing uh I, well, let me rephrase that if you weren't doing if yeah. you weren't in marketing yeah what other sector or what other profession would you be in? I'd love to be um, an ultra runner. So I'm trying okay. to get there. Um, so I would be training for um, the spine race, which is the whole, the, the Pennines. It's it's 200, oh, wow. 268 miles. Oh my God. Uh, Jasmine Paris. Actually, I don't know if Damien Hall has just broken the record, but she did it maybe last year or the year before for eight under 83 hours. And she was breastfeeding. She just <sighs> I think it was because um, she didn't need sleep because when you're a new mum, you don't sleep. So she didn't need to sleep during the race. So okay. she, she beat the night. She ran through the night. Yeah, yeah. So she did, literally. And she did it. Did she do? Yeah. And it's in it's in January. So it's like brutal because it's from um, it's from Edale in Derbyshire, which is not that far, all the way up to Scotland. It's brutal. It's a tough race. So okay. I'd be for that. And, and this is something you want to do? Oh, I'll do it. I'll do it. Sounds like far too much hard work and pain. I know, but it's a challenge, isn't it? Yeah. You know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Um, <clears throat> Not that it's possible under lockdown. <laughs> yeah. by the way. Um, I I'd probably be in the mountains somewhere. Maybe the Swiss mountains. Looking mm, beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, mm. I know. I know. And, and why? Because it's just really beautiful out there. I like mm. mountains. I like doing a lot of walk and outdoors. And you could go skiing. And it's really hot in the summer. Mm. I just think you could have a nice life out there. And it's, mm. they're, they're really clean as well in Switzerland. Yeah. Been, but it's a very clean place, which is obviously it is. right now. <laughs> it is. Yeah, definitely. Very clean and, and very expensive. Yeah. Um, and my final question, Joanne, what's the single biggest thing that you're yet to achieve that you'd like to achieve in your career? Wow. Um, I think it's more passing on. Um Passing on what I've learned to, you know, like your younger self. So I've got mm. I've got a young team here and I, I like mentoring, not sort of in a, I'll tell you how to live your life kind of way, but you know, helping guide people when the, the, the confidence is not building it up and that sort of stuff. So I think I want to do something around that, whether it's, you know, talking about it, writing a book or something, I don't know. Doing podcasts? Yeah, <laughs> maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe, let's see how this goes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, no, thank you for your time, Joanne. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. It's been good. If you'd like to share any comments on this episode or any episode of Client Side, then find us online at fox.agency. If you'd like to appear as a guest on the show, please email millie at fox.agency. The people that make the show possible are Millie Bell and Natasha Rosich, our booker slash researcher. David Clare is our head of content. Ben Fox is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Annie Barber. You've been listening to Client Side from Fox Agency. And we're done. Join us next time on Client Side, brought to you by Fox Agency.